and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I had a great week last week. I was following the new five star in the USA at Maryland. It was a really brilliant competition and, and so exciting to have another top level event on the calendar. We'll talk a little more about that later. First of all, though, our interview this week is with a recent winner from Horse of the Year show, the SCIB Search for a Star champion, Lucy Hopkins, who won with her hunter, Chili Breeze. We found out her reaction to the result. Gobsmacking. I'm not normally one not to have something to um, say. I'm quite a chatty person, but to be honest, I was absolutely gobsmacked. It is the best feeling in the world. I'll be talking to our news team about vets suffering injuries when treating horses, how the betting public react to female jockeys and factors that increase risk in eventing. Finally, equestrian psychology coach Charlie Unwin talks about managing your competition nerves. I'm always more concerned when I hear a rider say that they don't get nervous in any way because in my mind I'm kind of wondering whether they're actually suppressing those feelings. They're not actually focused on the job at hand. So that's enough of me. Pull on your gloves. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this week's guest interview on the Horse and Hound podcast. My name's Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. And most of the major shows are over now. The Horse of the Year show, Hoys the big final that everyone's anticipating all season. And I know I'm looking forward to a rest and yeah, lots of relaxing and maybe some arena eventing. So yeah, as I said, Hoys has been and gone. And one of the main champions from the show was Wheatland Hunt stud groom, Lucy Hopkins, who took a break from the hunting field and arraigned as champion of the SEIB Search for a Star series with her beautiful grey lightweight hunter, Chili Breeze, who's known as Matty at Home. And we're really lucky to have Lucy here with us today. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Brilliant. So, yeah, the SEIB Search for a Star series is a home-produced series for, for those showing riders who haven't ridden at Hoys before and are new to the sport. Many top showing producers have started out here um, and it's best known for producing the really well-known rider Jordan Cook to showing who won the final in 2007 with his hack Fleet to Water Executive and there are many other names who have who have kind of found their feet uh, in the search for a star. So Lucy prior to the search for a star uh, had you done any showing? I'd done some sort of local lower level um, showing with sort of past horses but nothing uh, certainly nothing of um the standard that we did on a Friday. <laughs> yeah, and, and what made you made you want to try it? I mean, obviously, Matty, he's a gorgeous horse and he looked like he, he thrived in that atmosphere, but what made you want to give it a go being a hunting person? Um, I've always loved and always watched the hunter side of showing, always been very interested in showing and always had a real dream that I would have a horse that I could show Mm-hmm. possibly at you know at a nice level didn't actually expect Matty to be the one that would um <laughs> take me there to be honest we bought him <clears throat> really just to be a hunter not to have any you know dream of he would turn out quite like he has so 
it's been a bit of a surprise, really. <laughs> and where did Matty come from? Um, he's a seven-year-old now, if I've got that correct. But yeah, um, how did you come to, you know, get him and when were you first acquainted with him? Um, some very good friends of mine, Rowan and Lydia Cope, they bought him over from Ireland as a four rising five-year-old to produce on and sell on. And they'd had him for about six months and a couple of my friends um, from back at home, they'd seen him out and kept saying I should go and have a look at him. But ideally didn't want anything as young as him. But in the end, I sort of <laughs> gave into the peer pressure and thought, we'll go and have a look and actually just loved the ride on him and just thought, well, yeah, he's a nice sort. And he wasn't too... Um, he wasn't too grey, so I thought he wouldn't take uh, too much mm. keeping clean. Um, <laughs> and we had him, we hunted him lightly, then uh, gave him a bit of a break. And of course, with all the lockdown and everything, we actually roughed him off and turned him away. And he just didn't stop growing. And he <laughs> was about 16 hands when we bought him. And he's now a shade under 17 hands. And he just sort of had time to mature and he just turned into this, nice looking horse that actually we thought oh that's actually quite nice and a uh, few people said you know really you should try you know try some showing with him and it's gone from there really wow and where did you qualify for the for the search for star finals at only at rugby perfect and, and when was that in the season because it's quite a long a long time to wait isn't it you know during the summer season you know keeping everything right for October it is a long time yeah, he, it, I can't, I think it was back in August he qualified mm. then. So, yeah, he was, um, and we went there really because that's sort of where home is, is more rugby direction for me. So it was a, a chance to go and see a couple of friends and um, my mother to, my mother and sister to come and actually watch him do something because they haven't really managed to see much of him this summer. So it was a bit of an uh, excuse to have mm. a bit of a, family get together and do a show at the same time yeah and they, and they always do say don't they that the best day is when you qualify <laughs> oh yeah well I was a bit shocked because he actually came second in the qualifier so I I didn't realize that actually second place did um qualify you so it was a bit more of a surprise when they gave me the letter and said yes you ha you have qualified Brilliant. And and yeah, obviously you had such a dream, a dream time down at Hoy's. Can you just take me through your Hoy's trip? Like when did you head down and did you stay the night before? And yeah, what was it like? So me and my very dear friend, Jackie, she, me and her sort of headed down Thursday evening. I think we arrived at about 10 to 9. Mm -hmm. um, I had never actually even been to Hoy's to watch. So I was totally amazed at the whole massive scale of it. So we got him settled in and I think we actually got into bed about 11 o'clock in the lorry. So it was quite a quite a long sort of day, really, all in all. But um, I was just amazed at the whole scale and the size of the whole setup, really, with the stables and everything else. He mm -hmm. actually loves staying away, very strangely. I think the whole experience from start to finish, it was sort of, surreal really and couldn't quite believe that we were there and you won your class didn't you and then it was quite a quick turnaround to the championship so that must have been, just been an absolute whirlwind for you both it was I think we came out of the ring and I think we literally trotted all the way back to the lorry 
quick change um, and then trotted the whole way back, literally just to walk into the warm up with all of a sudden they were saying, calling us straight in. So, yeah, we didn't get a um, chance to really <laughs> take it all in at first. And how did you plan your show in the international arena? Because it's so overwhelming, isn't it? Kind of walking in there and just the size of it and the, and the crowds and the atmosphere. How did you kind of plan out your individual performance, you know, to show off Matty's strengths? Well, to be honest, we, um, as we were walking into the warm up, uh, Hannah Horton, she was out there with her mother that we'd seen at Onley um, at the workshop. They just said to me, look, he's a hunter, gallop him, do, you know, show that he can gallop. So that stuck in my mind. And um, it was quite funny because the stewards in there were laughing, saying they were on quite a tight time limit. So make it short <laughs> and sharp. So I thought, OK, that's all right. And I thought, well, not too much can go wrong if you're trying to do it, it fairly quickly. So I thought we'll just do a, a quick spin round and just hope for the best. <laughs> well, it obviously worked very well. Um, and what was it like to be called forward as the champion? I know they do it in reverse order, but yeah, how did it feel to have your, your number and then your name called forward as the 2021 Search for Star champion? Gobsmacking. Absolutely <laughs> gobsmacking. Yeah, I couldn't. I'm not normally one not to have something to um, say. I'm quite a chatty person. But to be honest, I was absolutely gobsmacked. And yeah, it is the best feeling in the world, to be honest. It makes all the long days and the being a bit short of money worthwhile. <laughs> and what's the plans for the future for Matty? Is he going to be hunting this winter? And do you have any plans for the show ring next year? No, he's going to um, he's going to have a holiday now just because I think he's earned it. And I, I want to keep him in uh, one piece now, really, for next summer. <laughs> I don't want to go and damage him now too much. So, <laughs> no, he'll um, he'll have a holiday out in the field with his, his uh, Shetland friends. And yeah, hopefully we'll um, start again come the spring. Perfect. And Lucy, as anyone kind of new to a sport, we, we all make um, mistakes in the early days and, yeah, we learn along the way. What are some of those things you've learned throughout taking part in the Search for Star series and as you've kind of grown into a show rider? I think, oh, well, that's very nice of you to say that. <laughs> um, I think take on every bit of advice that you get given. Listen and watch would be my, you know, watch how the professionals do it. Go to clinics and workshops with producers and show riders and just watch listen and learn I think is you never stop learning and I think you've just got to take it all on take it all on board and just keep trying really I think so sort of don't give up one day you'll have a bad show the next show can be a good one is how I would sort of look at it really don't get too disheartened when perhaps you don't do so well mm -hmm. and just going back to to Hoy's Lucy kind of finishing up did you get any time to look around or, or watch any of the classes because it's such an inspiring show isn't it was there anything you got to got to have a little check-in at I got to go and watch the lightweights which I was oh, yeah. um, very keen to do and we had a quick look around the shops but no actually not a huge um, amount of time really to sort of look around and but just the whole scale of it and the I think the noise actually sort of sticks in my <laughs> mind I remember we went and had a coffee and watched the top spec arena as it was all going on. And I think the, the noise and the crowd just absolutely <laughs> just sort of blew my mind a little bit. And I was a bit like, oh, my goodness. me!" <laughs> but yeah, it's just 
it was the best experience I think I've ever experienced. Yeah, it makes you want to go back and do it again and try and get back there again, I think would be my dream really now. Perfect. Well, we can't wait to see you there in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep trying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks so much for joining us, Lucy. And yeah, can't wait to hear about Matty's results uh, next season. But uh, enjoy your rest and speak to you soon. Thank you. So I am joined this week by two of my colleagues from the Horse and Hound News Desk. First of all, we have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. Hi, Eleanor. How are you? Hello. Yeah, good. Thank you. I've uh, been enjoying, if that's the right word, clipping, which is a oh, bane of my life every year, especially when it gets to autumn every year and I go, I really should have sent my clipper blades off to be sharpened <laughs> oh. every year. <laughs> <laughs> Alfie has already had two clips and uh, mum says he needs another one. <laughs> How many times do you clip him over the winter? Well, luckily, I don't clip him at all. Mum clips him and she's always like, what's going to happen when I'm too old? And I'm like, I'll pay someone because I hate (laughs) clipping. I just don't want to get involved. So, but yeah, he's had two. I reckon he'll probably have another three before Christmas and then two or three after Christmas. (laughs) Okay, I feel like I'm luckier now because mine get done three times and then by Christmas they don't need doing after that. Oh no, Alfie will be like eight or ten. (laughs) definitely he is like as soon as the winter comes he's like i've got to push that coat out you might send me back to connemara it's like you're not being made to stand like on a moor or whatever connemara is you're standing in a field in surrey and you have access to a stable oh, bless him. hey hey there we go we also have on the podcast this week our news writer becky murray hi becky how are you doing i'm fine thank you i'm hanging in there with my broken fingers the pain has lessened, but um, until I catch them on something and then I yelp. Ooh. But I hope to be back on board soon. I'm trying to behave and be patient. And I've been free schooling my mare and someone's been hacking her out for me to keep her ticking over. And hopefully I'll be on soon. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, good luck. Please continue to follow doctor's orders as you should. Don't be a naughty, horsey person who's too impatient. (laughs) Surely Um, not. (laughs) Well, I had a great week last week because I was reporting the Maryland five star in the US, sadly remotely because the American travel rules didn't change quite quick enough for me to go over there. But um, it was such a good competition. Um, Oliver Townend was leading all the way through until the very final show jumping round. Just had one rail down dropped to second, finished second by 0.1 of a penalty Mm. to the American Boyd Martin. So it was a great competition and and really exciting for the world to have another five star. And the most amazing cross-country fence I think anyone's ever seen with that crab. Yeah, yeah. it was Ian Stark's first time designing a five star and obviously had some great backup from the course builders over there. And uh, yeah, as Eleanor said, there was a crab fence that was uh, like this horrible suspended crab as you jumped into the water. And someone who's got a bit of a spider uh, aversion said to me, I don't like the eyes on that crab. It looks like a spider. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, it jumped really well. There were very few problems at it. The the most problems actually were at uh, a combination that... um, didn't look innocuous but it was sort of uh, much less impressive visually it was sort of hedges and boxes and corners all sort of brush and but there were actually the most most problems of anywhere were there including a, a run out for Zara Tyndall 
but um, the, everyone was saying that the terrain was going to be really tough and horses were going to be finishing very tired and there were some tired horses finishing but there were in the end 11 inside the time so the time proved quite easy to get and um, I won't reveal anything here but Mark Phillips has got some insight on that in his column in this week's magazine which will be online to, online as well in terms of why the time ended up being a little bit on the soft side um, but I think it's fair to say that if the weather had come in earlier in the day that came in at the very end of the day it would have been a bit of a different story but yeah definitely a really interesting and exciting five-star course design debut for, uh, for, for Britain's Ian Stark and a really great competition. What sort of temperature was it? What was the weather like? It was quite hot the first couple of days in the um, on the dressage days. It was actually really quite warm. And then on cross-country day, they actually ended up moving the times a bit earlier because of this forecast weather that was meant to be a really heavy storm and I think maybe some possibility of lightning as well. And literally as the last two riders were on course, it started to rain like pelting heavy like you could just see the sky was black on the broadcast and it looked like yeah I mean it looked like it looked it looked uh I was gonna say the end of the world maybe a bit maybe I'm being a bit of an exaggerator but it looked it looked like it was gonna rain yeah it's when you're warming up going just hold off hold off yeah no it did really start to pour down um and just as, as those last couple of riders were going around so it was definitely a good idea to pull everything earlier and not have 20 minutes of action with that going on but a good a good first event for the for the Maryland team yeah, definitely. And I think it's really important for the Americans to have this second five star in the year. You know, it's a big trip to bring a horse over to Europe for an autumn five star and very expensive. And it's sort of sometimes I think held horses back from being produced to the five star level as quickly as they can. They only have one shot a year and a long time for riders to wait to put it right if something goes wrong. And I think it'll really help them. And it's exciting for them to have an American winner. You know, that's the first American five star winner since 2008. It's been a long old time. So to get that in the first year at a new US event was a was a big deal. So uh, well done to Boyd Martin for that, for sure. Well, enough about Maryland. It was, a, uh, as I say, a great competition and you can read more about it in this week's magazine or catch everything online. But let's look at some other stories from this week. Becky, you have been looking at vets and injuries that vets can suffer in the course of their work. This was a study that prompted this story. Can you start by telling us about that? Yes, this was a study done by researchers of the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies at the University of Edinburgh. And the researchers aim to look at the challenges faced by vets when dealing with difficult horses. And by difficult, they're sort of talking about horses who are perhaps bargy or won't stand or are needle shy. And the study looked at vets' methods when dealing with these types of horses, be it the use of sort of sedation or physical restraint. And they also tested the vets on their understanding of how horses learn. And to give you sort of an example of some of the findings, um, vets who took part in the study, um, 80% of them said they understood the term positive reinforcement. But when tested on this, only 19% were actually correct. Gosh. And some of the other figures that came out of the study was 95% of the vets who took part reported working with difficult horses at least on a monthly basis and 579 injuries were recorded in the past five years. Gosh, so a lot of injuries being being suffered by vets in the course of dealing with horses. And you spoke as well to, to veterinary behaviourist Gemma Pearson about the, the study and her experiences working with vets. What did she say? 
Yes, so Gemma led the study and she's done some interesting work following this up and she said the findings weren't surprising in that vets aren't being taught about how horses learn while they're studying. It's sort of assumed they'll pick this up as they go. And she said sometimes when you have a horse that is, say, needle shy, the vet could in fact be negatively reinforcing that behaviour. So when the horse starts acting up and the vet, for example, takes their hand and the needle away, that negatively reinforces that. So as Gemma said, by understanding how horses learn, we can reinforce an alternative behaviour. And Gemma does run courses for vets and has a great video series about sort of teaching horses these dif- different be- behaviours. It's really interesting because when we were chatting about this story in the news meeting before you started writing it, you know, we were saying that we often assume all vets are horsey, but actually that's not always the case. You can have vets who, who come into the profession who don't come from a horsey background, don't ride and um, maybe just don't have the instinct or the things that people learn who've been around horses all their lives. So it's a really interesting one. Who else did you interview, Becky? I spoke to the vet Lucy Grieve, who is the chair of the British Equine Veterinary Association's Ethics and Welfare Committee. Lucy said she's been injured out on the road and she now uses some of the methods taught by Gemma with good success. And she said people have all these different opinions on how to handle difficult horses, but the more we can start understand and learn new methods and up-to-date knowledge, then hopefully we can reduce some of these sort of injuries and challenges being faced by vets. Hmm. Definitely. Well, that's an interesting one. Thank you, Becky. Eleanor, you were also writing about some research this week, completely different topic, female jockeys. What was this all about? Yeah, this um, came from, we have already covered uh, some, of, some of the research that was presented at the Racing Foundation's Horse Racing Industry Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And this was uh, a PhD student, Vanessa Cashmore, who had been looking into female jockey performance. And, you know, she was saying, obviously, we've got the likes of Rachel Blackmore and, and Holly Doyle and, and, and female jockeys are holding their own at the very top of the sport. But she's looked into she asked do we really believe females can equal males in race riding so she was looking at the fact that only about a quarter of licenses last year were held by females that's that figure sort of stayed uh, fairly static recently but more of these are amateur licenses than professionals and she uh, wondered whether this may be choice or maybe there's some trainer or owner bias going on and um, so she looked into female jockey performance and of course that can be difficult because it can be difficult to separate the results of the horse and the rider. So they looked at and they looked at something like 69,000 races data over 20 years and they compared the horse's starting odds to where they actually finished because obviously the starting odds reflect where the betting public um, thinks they're going to finish. And she found out that essentially horses ridden by female jockeys were more likely to win than those ridden by men and that's down to winning and it was down to how much a female rider improved the horse's performance so how much it finished above what it was expected to on its odds if that makes sense (laughs) okay so to make sure i've understood this correctly this is a case of the betting public have a certain amount of confidence in the horse which which sort of sets the price and then in general females were improving on on the confidence that the public had compared to males is that right yeah so essentially the betting public are underestimating female female jockey performance um and that's across the board and and she was saying that um definitely some gender bias here coming from somewhere um and it's possible that actually female performance is improving but the market isn't catching up but she said the most underestimation was in the last few years and so she says i'm hedging my bets and saying it's outright discrimination 
Okay, really interesting. Mm. And um, I'm a bit of a doofus about bet- betting, but am I also understanding correctly that if you want to uh, get a good price, you should basically bet on a female jockey because they'll probably do better than expected? Yeah, there was a, there was lots of talk at, at the conference about how, well, hey, we might all be onto a winner here, us, us people um, at the meeting, because we can all go and bet on the female jockeys and win a few quid. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Eleanor. <laughs> Becky, coming back to you to round up today, we you were also looking at a really interesting FEI commission study about risk profiles in eventing. What sort of thing was, was coming out of this study? This was a really interesting study and an awful lot of data to get your head around. This work was based on more than 187,000 horse starts in uh, the cross-country phase at FEI events between 2008 and 2018. And of these starts, there was almost 2,900 horse falls and more than 6,500 unseated riders. Now, the researchers used a statistical model, basically looked at all the potential different risk factors that could be applied to these horse and rider combinations based on their individual performances and course level factors. And some of the findings included male riders are at greater odds of having a horse fall compared to a female. Mares were found to be at an increased risk of a fall compared to a gelding or a stallion. And combinations who recorded a dressage score of 50 or more were at an increased risk of a horse fall or unseated rider. And the lead researcher, Dr. Bennett, said the hope is to sort of use all of this data to create a risk profile for combinations. And obviously it is based on probability and no one's saying don't ride because you're going to fall off. But the profile would allow someone to know if they are in the top 5% at risk of a fall at a certain level, for example. Hmm, really, really fascinating, as you say. And when I saw it, I thought immediately of the work that EC Ratings has done in this area in the past, where they sort of had, I think, a quality index for each combination. And again, it was about sort of saying, you know, you're 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 in the more risky the more risky band of people for for having a fall. That EC Ratings work is is something that the British Eventing representative you spoke to mentioned, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. I spoke with Jonathan Clissold, the BE National Safety Officer, and BE has worked on similar sort of research projects and looking at these data for falls and cross-country competitions at BE events. And he said BE is already looking at developing individual risk assessments through this equity ratings quality index that you've mentioned there. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Becky, for running us through that and to Eleanor for uh, joining us today too. Now we're going over to performance psychologist and mental coach Charlie Unwin. Charlie works across sport, business and the military and helps riders to optimise their performance from the inside out in training and in competition. He's passionate about working with equestrians because the horse's performance is an extension of the riders. His clients won an incredible four gold medals at the recent Olympics in Tokyo, as well as three silvers and one bronze. Over to you, Charlie. In the last episode, we started to look at nerves and in particular the physiological challenge of nerves which we addressed in that one and in this episode we're going to be looking at the mental challenge of nerves and how we can direct our attention in a way that nerves actually help our performance on the horse rather than hinder it so once we've got the physiological components of nerves taken care of 
uh, which I described as part one and two of a, of a three-step fundamental process with with the first step being our, our breathing, deep rhythmical breathing, and the second step being around active relaxation. The third step is essential, and it's about positive focus. At least that's what I call it anyway, because broadly we can achieve positive focus in a myriad of different ways. Uh, and I want to share some of those ways with you here. So the first, I think, really important point to note about positive focus is, is what I would call adopting a challenge mindset to what you do. I've met many, many riders over the years who faced with exactly the same situation. Some riders have lent into that as a challenge, uh, a challenge which they're very much up for, and they have a positive relationship with that challenge. Whether that's, you know, getting the horse uh, into their first sort of novice competition or competing at Olympic level, it really doesn't matter the level. The idea is that as a rider, we perceive much of what we do as a challenge. And the way that we perceive that determines how our mind and body responds. So the challenge response might be a positive response. The negative response might be leaning away from the challenge. In other words, being frightened of it, being scared of it. And probably most likely that comes through not having a clear plan clear goals about what exactly am I trying to do here? Because it's a sense of control that very often determines whether we're excited about something or we're scared about something. And we have uh, the ability to, to manage control in any situation. Some situations we may feel like there's very little that we can control, but the best athletes in the world are the ones who are able to tune in to, to that very little uh, to be able to understand uh, what that is and how to stay focused on it. So leaning into challenge, I think, is the first really important component of that. Interestingly, studies done in special forces in the military have shown that some environments, in particular escape and evasion, where um, soldiers are put under huge, huge amounts of pressure and stress, uh, in fact, the amount of pressure and stress that they're put under has been found to, to be some of the highest stress levels in the world ever found, measured by a chemical called cortisol, which is uh, a long-term stress hormone. And what interestingly they found is that soldiers who dealt very uh, well with, with these stress situations, these acute stress situations, actually had more cortisol in their system than the ones who didn't deal with it very well. Now, just think about that for a second. Why would we have more cortisol in our system as we're effectively dealing with a challenge situation or a particularly stressful situation than someone who's perhaps not dealing with it as well? And the answer really lies in, in how we approach what we're doing mentally. You see, what they found was that those who lean into the challenge have a plan. They don't uh, focus all their efforts on suppressing the nerves, on suppressing the discomfort or the intensity of where they are. Rather, they simply focus their efforts on some kind of a plan, on positive doing. 
And by doing that, they almost embrace the feeling that comes with that, that feeling of nerves. So very often I'm talking to riders and I'm always more concerned when I hear a rider say that they don't get nervous in any way, because in my mind, I'm kind of wondering whether they're actually suppressing those feelings and therefore they're using so much energy to suppress those feelings that they're not actually focused on the job at hand. In other words, they get brain fog around what they're doing. Um, and it's very, very easy uh, to happen. I was working with Run Rider recently who literally forgot to halt and salute going down the center line. And it's just a really typical example of what brain fog can look like. Interestingly, that person said that they don't really get nervous. So there's a real challenge there that I think we have to kind of embrace the feelings that go with it. Our goal is to think clearly despite the nerves. So how can we do that? Well, I've got a number of, of different methodologies that I use. One, one is really simple and it's called the bubble. Um, and I won't go into it to too much detail here. However, the principle is very often enough, I think, to get people using this positively. And the idea is that if you imagine a bubble in front of you, if I put pressure on that bubble, if I squeeze that bubble, it's probably not long before it pops. And your performance is a bit like a bubble. On the inside of that bubble is everything that you can control. It's your plan. It's your warm up routine. It's the focus that you're going to give to each fence, uh, to the rhythm or the accuracy of what you're trying to do on the horse. It keeps you positively focused. It is your positive doing. On the outside of the bubble are all the things that you can't control. Uh, very often within your environment, uh, and it might be uh, people watching, uh, it might be the judge, it could be the weather, it could be the ground, the size of the warm-up arena. All of these things we have absolutely no control over. Now, the idea is that we should be able to focus on what's in the bubble, to get inside our own bubble and just to focus on the plan. And the more coherent and joined up the plan is, the easier it is to stay focused on it, the more practiced it is, whether that's in our heads or for real in the horse. Hence, practicing your warm-ups help you to gain a level of familiarity with it, which maintains your focus when something goes wrong um, or something unexpected happens. So by and large, that's what we mean by controlling the controllables, by focusing on what's in your bubble. What I would say, however, is that that doesn't mean to say that we ignore everything on the outside. And I think this is a sort of common misconception. The idea of controlling the controllables is, is probably a very cool notion in performance psychology, and it's familiar to a lot uh, of seasons, athletes and riders. However, um, focusing on what you can control uh, is not the same as ignoring what you can't control. I would always use the term accept what you can't control. It's slightly different to ignoring it, but there's a profound difference. And that is that when I get people to kind of write out their bubble on a piece of paper around the outside, they might write all these things like the weather, the judge, other people watching uh, past, you know, past experience at this at this particular venue, whatever it might be. But the reason that they write it and they have to write it down is because those things are real. Those things do affect our thoughts. They do distract us. 
And therefore, I think it's really important to actually work on them, recognize what it's going to be like for those things to be present. How do I want to think about those things? What, what do I need to do in order to actually be able to let them go? And that's a process that a lot of people don't go through. Uh, and therefore, it plays on the back of their minds and it distracts them from being able to focus on what's inside the bubble. So I'd say accepting what you can't control is probably a more important idea than ignoring what you can't control. But fundamentally, what we're trying to do is always the same. And, and it's to have that, that total presence, that mindfulness on the things that we've given ourselves, whether it's accuracy, whether it's straightness. And they, the more simple, the better, to be honest. You've done all the hard work and the complex stuff in, in training. Once you get to competition and you're feeling nervous, you don't have the same mental capacity to, to kind of overthink things. So keep things very, very simple, but keep an even focus to what you do. Don't try and jump from one thing to the other. Try and keep an evenness to what you're focusing on. That's why rhythm is quite a good focus. That's why straightness or accuracy is good because it's as true for the beginning of your round as it is for the end of your rounds. It's as true for if you knock the first pole over um, to if you're going clear and you're going up to the last fence. So um, that evenness of focus can be very helpful. And the final thing I'll say about the mental challenge uh, of dealing with nerves is, is the importance of visualization. Anyone that knows me will know that this is my key topic. This is what I love to talk about the most. But visualization, the idea of, of thinking through something as if we're there actually doing it in the saddle, on the horse, with the same rhythm, with the same preciseness, with the, at the same pace as is going to be there, as we're going to be there in real life. That has a profound effect on priming the brain, on creating that sense of familiarization with our environments. And there's a technical element to it where it familiarizes ourselves with everything that we've been training to do on the horse, everything that we've been working on, bringing it back to something very simple, that feel. But there's also an emotional element to it, which is really important for nerves, which is being able to lean in to the environment that we know we're going to be in, to imagine ourselves in that arena, to imagine people around us watching us to almost embrace that competition environment, allow the heart rate to go up, allow the excitement to sort of pump through the, the, the veins and the muscles whilst we're breathing, step one, whilst we're relaxing, step two, and whilst we're visualizing, we've got that positive focus on enacting a clear positive plan, step three. So hopefully that gives you plenty to think about uh, when it comes to managing uh, your physiology and the mental challenge of nerves. Good luck with that and uh, I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, Charlie. Well, next week, Charlie will be back to talk about dealing with success and failure as a competitor. And I'll be interviewing eventer Izzy Taylor, talking about her recent rides at the European Championships in Buccalow and looking forward to Po 5 Star. Plus, of course, we'll review all the week's news as normal. Talk to you next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.